0: For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And welcome to the latest readout video from our Wednesday wake-up email newsletter, to which you should subscribe along with our other social media. And please, if you aren't already a backer, make a monthly pledge of $5 or so because we don't receive the lavish government and foundation funding that's available to climate alarmists, and it's important that someone push back against them. For instance, we note in the first item in this week's newsletter, even The Economist appears to have bought into this strangely popular notion that politicians can easily redesign modern economies and make them work much better. That publication chirps, quote, Joe Biden's effort to remake the economy is ambitious, risky, and selfish. But America's plan to spend $2 trillion could help save the planet, end quote. Yeah, it could. Or it could sink the economy and not fix the weather. But why do they call it selfish? Well, Among the less appreciated and apparently unanticipated attributes of America's misleadingly named Inflation Reduction Act is that the flood of subsidies into unproven technology has created pressure for many other governments to leap into the sorts of beggar-thy-neighbor trade policies that, back in the 1930s, also managed to beggar-thy-citizens and cause wars. So who could resist? Not American states. They're already luring firms from Europe with promises of taxpayers' money in vast amounts, to make things that nobody wanted to buy before the subsidies started flowing. Nor can European governments resist. They apparently see no plausible response, but to put even more public cash on the table to lure manufacturers back to make those things on that continent. Or media outlets like the New York Times, which is now peddling government subsidies instead of questioning them, the days of speaking truth to power, or even about it, evidently being long gone. Thus, they say, quote, ready for the climate version of HGTV? At the moment, you can start making plans for climate-friendly home makeovers with some help from your tax dollars. That's one of the goals of the $370 billion Inflation Reduction Act. It offers oodles of money to get rid of fossil fuels from your everyday life, end quote. And also absent from the list are Canadian politicians. In the National Post, Carson Jarema fumed that, quote, as soon as the Americans passed the ludicrously named Inflation Reduction Act, the shameless begging in Canada for the liberals to bring in their own plan would make the most seasoned con artists wince. Everyone has their hand out demanding their cut. Car makers, universities, unions, oil and gas companies, renewable energy companies, and anyone who believes lobbying liberals is preferable to satisfying customers has dollar signs in their eyes, end quote. He adds that, quote, a wiser government would recognize that just because the Americans want to spend enormous amounts of public money for little benefit, we are not obliged to follow, end quote. To which we respond wearily, so what's your point? As McGill economist William Watson adds, our governments seem bent and determined on matching any subsidy from south of the border, but not tax cuts, even though Watson says, quote, subsidies are just negative taxes, end quote. There's even a subsidy fistfight going on within Europe over it, in which one ambassador called the EU Commission president, quote, Karl Marx on steroids, end quote. And when European politicians are calling you a galder and commie, you know things are bad. But maybe more of them and more journalists could recognize central planning for what it is—an old and very bad idea. Instead, the Economist says, quote, for better or worse, Mr. Biden's blueprint for remaking the economy will change America profoundly. End quote, and adds, quote, Mr. Biden is taking an epoch-making political gamble. End quote. Except a gamble normally has some chance of paying off, however slight, and epoch-making things have to make epochs, or at least an era or something. For as endless overhyped politicians' plans to redesign reality have fizzled out time and again, leaving only a pile of debt behind along with some charred hopes. In this week's newsletter, we also note that the past year wasn't a good one for alternative energy. By alternative, I mean the trendy renewables, wind and solar. From the failure of key energy systems during the harsh winter of 2021 22, including in Texas, to the perilous dependence of Europeans on Russian natural gas because their windmills weren't up to the task, events appeared to confirm that if you don't like hydrocarbons and you don't have abundant hydro, you'd really better build nuclear reactors, or if you have them but weren't using them, you better turn them back on. But to the world's press, renewables had a great year and only mudsticks couldn't see it. For instance, Michael Bloomberg wrote in his own media outlet that the increasingly alarming loss of power in winter is due to the unreliability of fossil fuel plants, even though it never happened until we started replacing those ones with wind and solar and then the lights and the heat went off. Bloomberg says, quote, the public is paying a steep cost in higher electric bills, dangerous blackouts, harmful pollution that kills thousands of Americans every year and changes to the climate that are making extreme weather and the suffering that it brings worse, end quote. Though in the real world, we hear from, of all outlets, BNN Bloomberg, that, quote, UK asks households to reduce power for second day as wind fades, end quote. And that's in midwinter. The story then added, quote, the UK's grid operator asked three reserve coal units to be ready to supply power, end quote. So apparently it forgot that it's those plants that we can't depend on. The glories of green energy are now so clear, despite their abysmal reliability record, that The Economist assures us that even Republican Texas ranchers are big wind power enthusiasts. Quote, go to Texas to see the anti-green future of clean energy, end quote, they say, and behold, quote, lessons for liberals from climate skeptic wind ranchers, end quote. The lesson being that if you offer big enough subsidies, even supposedly rugged individualists will dive into the trough. Great. Who knew enough money could buy really bad policy? Well... Everybody once upon a time, but now almost nobody, and speaking of who knew, it's funny how climate certainties move about without losing any of their certainty. For instance, the figure of 1.5 degrees Celsius as the maximum warming that we could tolerate since the Russo-Turkish war thereabouts came out of thin air that instantly hardened into dogma useful for panicking the masses. But now it seems to have melted at any rate, the Atlantic's weekly planet, temporarily under new management suddenly pats us on the head with, quote, 1.5 degrees was never the end of the world, the most famous climate goal is woefully misunderstood, end quote. Yeah, silly us. Wherever did we get that idea? Oh, right. From you. And everybody bought it. But now they cheerfully say, quote, here's the thing, 1.5 degrees, or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, isn't based on any scientific calculation, end quote. What? Then what was all that condescending yapping about settled science to do with? And another thing, did they only just clue in now, or have they always known and only now felt like mentioning it? Because either way, it doesn't speak well of their reliability, especially since that piece then says, quote, the 1.5 degree target won't be entirely obsolete, it has another function. 1.5 now represents what humanity should have accomplished. As a reference against which humanity's failures can be judged, it will remain powerful, end quote. Yeah, even though it had no scientific basis. And so, you admit it's wrong, but keep pushing it because you're not interested in truth, just political leverage. Great. What else should we believe when you say it? Now, one thing that's clear from this sort of story is that climate alarmists and green revolutionaries don't discourage easily. Indeed, Canada's government stumbles from scandal to fiscal mishap like some political version of Dr. Watson in those old Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, black-and-white B-movies. But after claiming to feel people's pain, quote, we can feel it, how times are tough right now, end quote, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said before a caucus meeting, his colleagues then promised to throw a lot more money down the drain on green projects that will fail and wreck the parts of the economy that are still working into the bargain. Trudeau's Minister of Natural Resources burbled that he'd rather call his just transition bill a sustainable jobs bill, perhaps because just and Justin sound too much alike. And the news story tells us, quote, in the next few months, his government will introduce further policy on green technology projects. While his colleague, Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne, said that the government is just getting started on job creation in the imaginary green sector. Quote, I would say last year was the appetizer. The main course is this year, end quote. Great. We've already got indigestion, and it's going to get worse as they continue to force feed us. In the newsletter, we also mention again the rather old news that the legacy media insist on calling heat climate and cold weather. But we bring it up again partly because, while we're used to them alternating, depending what's outside various windows at the moment, we had something new to highlight this week, the shameless presentation of both of them in the same story. NBC declared that hideous wintry blasts from Dallas to Little Rock and Nashville were merely storms, but, quote, the lack of snow in the east, end quote, is due to, quote, the warming climate, end quote. Amazing. Both at once. There's nothing climate change cannot do, including being simultaneously present and absent. Oh, and continuing with our fact check on Al Gore's epic rant in Davos. We're still putting 162 million tons into it every single day, and the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century. Look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We note that his explanation, quote, that's what's boiling the oceans, end quote, lacks a certain credibility since the oceans are not boiling. But why nitpick when you can rave instead? On the other hand, there's this new study in Nature Communication that adds to the evidence that additional CO2 in the air is driving an explosion of greening around the world. And what's more, it seems that when a place gets greener, it cools a bit because plants moderate temperature, including in China, where another item from the CO2Science.org archive explains that Alarmist claims that rising temperature is ravaging the biosphere don't seem to correspond very well to uh, that reality thing there outside the window. Instead, from 1982 to 2015, there's been a lot of greening in China. It seems that plants really like CO2, even if a newspaper article says they don't. Maybe bok choy can't read. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know political dreams often end in policy nightmares.